Welcome to the Hashtag CNF Podcast. I am your host, Brendan O'Mara. And today's guest is Sarah Einstein, author of the wonderful memoir, Mott, a memoir. Uh, In it, we talk about uh, her uh, really smart decision to really make uh, this this man, this uh, sort of unrooted man that she knew from her time as a social worker, the central figure of her book versus having herself the, real, the true central figure. Uh, really well done how she, how she approached it. And it's just a, a, a really, really good book published by University of Georgia Press. Um, beyond that, you know, I think it's been about three months since I posted an episode, but that's kind of how it goes. Uh, these things, they just come up when they can, and we just got to roll with it. Um, you know, be sure, of course, to uh, subscribe to the podcast. It's never going to be something that completely inundates your podcast feed. kind of will show up when it does, uh, when I can. Um, you know, if you have any uh, inquiries or any other kind of questions, you can go to brendanomara.com or email me. Brendan at brendanomara.com. Real creative there. So, uh, in any case, we've got Sarah Einstein, and I hope you enjoy this one. So, uh, be sure to give it a listen and share it with friends and uh, buy our book. It's a darn good one. Thank you. What was your favorite breakfast cereal growing up? Oh, this, this one's really easy Count Chocula. Oh, nice. I was worried. I'm always worried when I ask that question that someone's going to say, like, grape nuts or Wheaties, and at, at which point the conversation's over. Yeah, we actually weren't even supposed to have it, and my grandfather, who came to see us every morning before school, used to smuggle it into us, huh. along with, with sugar donuts from the bakery. Wow. So- <laughs> Nice. And the, the, the beauty about Count Chocula or Cocoa Puffs is, isn't necessarily the cereal itself. It's what happens to the milk afterwards. Absolutely. <laughs> well, very nice. Well, let's, um, you know, without, without further ado, let's, um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. So let's, um, you know, let's get a, a get a, get going about, about your book, um, that, uh, it comes out, oh, when does it come out exactly? Is it, com- it comes out this month, or it might already be out. Um, the official launch date is September 15th, but okay. it's already shipping and out in the world. Nice. How does that feel to know that your book is it's out there and shipped and there's nothing you can do about it anymore except, uh, except uh, try to promote it and um, see people react to it? Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I, in truth... The whole time I was writing it, I never thought really about anybody reading it. And it always sort of seemed like an an exercise between myself and my graduate school advisors and a few close readers. And there's something about it being out in the world and people starting to respond to it that is frightening. Exciting, but frightening. Yeah, it's a. Why do you think that is? Is it a is it a loss of control now that it's that it's published, or is it just because because the story in so many ways is so personal and raw that it's like okay now it's p- 
people can judge me based on the me in the book instead of the me who's just out there living day to day. I'm actually not that worried about people judging me, but in some of the reviews that people have posted online, they've used words from Mott that make me uncomfortable. Um, one reviewer called him insane, which is a word that, that makes me uncomfortable. And a big part of, of what was challenging about writing this book was the ethical representation of Mott and mm. making sure that I presented him in all of his complexity. And, and I worry sometimes that I have failed to do that in the way that I needed to when readers respond with kind of reductionist ideas of who he was. Yeah, it, I think what you've done, and I, I mentioned this bef- before to you, is like what like I think why the memoir does is is so good and so you done so well is that you you really focused uh, so much of the attention on on Mott as uh, the central figure that kind of that was that we just we we follow and I I know I was like kind of rooting for him like hoping that he found a certain degree of balance in his life to quiet some of those voices that have that have haunted him for for as long as he's been alive and try to like piece together all the um so or come to peace with all the 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 trauma that happened in his in his life and uh yeah i i know as i was reading it, i was always kind of i was i was rooting for him and hoping that uh that he could pull through in a way uh, that I think was satisfactory to to you be seeing as how emotionally invested in his life you were and I, I think you did a phenomenally good job with that and it and I, I can understand that maybe it, that it is a bit upsetting to hear people reduce him to in, an insane person when it's far deeper than that right I mean the truth is he was brilliant in so many ways that I would never be brilliant um, part of what fascinated me about him was that he lived in a far more difficult world than most of us live in. And he came up with solutions to problems that would never have occurred to me. The fact that he was able to figure out that because Romania will provide, or at least at that time, would provide dental care to anybody, how to use his meager social security check to fly to Romania to get his teeth fixed. Mm-hmm. He started to, when his teeth started to go bad, I was, that astounded me. I'd have been a person who sat at home and complained about my teeth falling out of my head and, and didn't ever find a solution for that. That would have felt like an insoluble problem to me. And I was so fascinated by his brilliance in leading this incredibly difficult life, even if it didn't look like a livable life to me. Yeah, he was, he's incredibly resourceful in that sense. I think he there's an exchange in the book, too, where... You know, if you were willing to take about, I don't know, four days to fly across the country, that you could just wait for these standby tickets at a discounted rate and kind of hopscotch your way across the country in such a way, if if you had the time, as someone like Mott, Mott did, because he was sort of um, you know unconnected to a lot of the normal societal tropes like uh, your your day to day jobs that most of us are are tied to. But uh, but again, it really speaks to his resourcefulness, and I think that's something that you successfully illustrate throughout the whole book, and I think something that you truly admire about him. Absolutely. Things like the fact that, you know, when I met him, he was 66, which means that he had never been in a setting 
where people used computers, but he taught himself how to use computers and the Internet just at public libraries. I mean, that's really amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you just think about how, how just uh, uh, people of a certain age sometimes have a hard time grasping... Um, you know, smartphones and, and tablets. I, I know even I'm starting to, <laughs> uh, I have to ask my eight-year-old niece how to do certain things. And 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 I, I imagine being someone who's you know, 66 and nomadic and teaching himself how to use uh, newer technologies uh, without the, the grounding in uh, education and, and whatnot that, that most of us take for granted. And here this guy is, he's able to just... A, you get a sense that he could just you know, find new, new and inspiring ways to create fire that we would never, never imagine. That's a great way to put it. I think he, I think he was always finding new and creative ways to create fire because he always, he always had to do things differently. His illness never let him stay in one place very long, and and it overwrote everything with fear. So he always had to find new ways to go about something. And so how did you come to this story, and why did you feel compelled to write about it? Or at what point did you realize, I, I can't sit on the story any longer, and I just I need to make sense of this on the page and, and tell, the, tell this great sort of buddy movie story between the two of you? So I keep having to confess this now that I'm talking about the book, which is that if you tell people you're going to go drive to Amarillo, Texas to visit your homeless friend in his homelessness, they kind of roll their eyes at you or say, oh, no, we can't allow that. That's a terrible idea. If you add, so I can write a book, they think, oh, that's great. Would you like to borrow my tent? <laughs> um, and the truth is the book started out as a ruse. I never actually imagined that I would write this book. I never actually imagined that I could write any book. I tend to work mostly in short form. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a book-length work kind of terrified me. But because I had started writing and because people you know, knew that I was writing and putting out short-form work, when I said, I'm just going to write a book about this, it, it suddenly made most of the objections to my trying to continue this friendship go away. And so I took a lot of careful notes, and I twirled everything away, but I don't think I ever thought that the book would actually get written until after Mott had left. Mm -hmm. And then it was really the thing that filled up the space of missing him. Uh. It It was a way that I could try to both honor the friendship, and although I realized I couldn't keep it alive, it wasn't to keep going once this illusion had made me a fearful person, and now I'm afraid I've just given away the end of the book. Um, <laughs> it was a way for me to to keep engaged with that and figure out for myself why I had needed to do that and what was so important in my life about that. What kind of uh, discipline did it take on your end to to wait until he was fully sort of out out of your life? to then write the book? Because I, I think a lot of people would want to, uh, you can almost see it unfolding in, in the process, that, but you were able to hold back enough to create enough distance, I think, at that point to then structure what, what it was that eventually became the book. So how were how you able to approach that and not jump into it too soon? 
Uh, well, the truth is, I, I think I jumped into it maybe a little bit too soon, which is why this book has gone through about a million drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the distance that, that is there on the page exists more from the drafting process than from my not writing about it. To believe you have to give memory time to sort of mellow and, and age and, and become a narrative. And because I started writing, I probably did start writing within a, you know, a few days before he left. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, I had been doing so much note-taking. There was so much work to be done in terms of capturing things that that itself was the kind of work that was just at that stage of the project. It was really important to me, for instance, that I actually capture dialogue with him um, in a really accurate way because he has such an idiosyncratic way of speaking. Right. And so often while we were spending time together, I'd pull out my notebook and try to recreate the dialogue, and he would look at it and correct me if I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, And and sometimes that meant that I had these pieces of dialogue uh, recorded that I knew were wrong because sometimes his memory would become imbued with his delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but most often he just was better at remembering accurately exactly what was said. He had an almost eidetic memory. What was the most uncomfortable part about writing this book? Sitting down and just and hammering it out however long it had taken you. What were some of those challenges and those uncomfortable moments as you crafted your book? I found it really hard to write the parts about my life at home away from Mott because I was in a marriage that didn't succeed and I didn't want at any point to make it seem like the reason it didn't succeed was somebody else's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were a lot of tensions in that marriage. My ex-husband and I had very different ideas of what the marriage should look like. And I was very aware that because the book is from my position, if I wasn't careful, I could make him look like a real jerk. And I hope I haven't done that because he wasn't a real jerk. He was just a person with a very different idea of what home and family should be. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 oh, yeah. Go on. I'm sorry. And, and I think also, um, writing about Mike, the other homeless young man who lives in our accident, mm-hmm. because Mike was, Mike had more to lose if he came across in the book in a bad way, and Mike had been less of an active participant in the decision to write the book. And so I really wanted to, to make sure that Mike wasn't too present, and that I, I focused on the things about having Mike live with us that were positive. Although I had to acknowledge the challenges as well, and it it, it appeared like um, with, with your ex husband, who was very like committed to his patient in, in Rita, and then you were also you know very committed to Mott in such a ways. And I was like wondering, you know, what it what it was that that maybe the two of you sought like what what sort of hold do you feel that uh, spending spending so much time with people who are were you know mentally ill and having to help help them through their daily lives what 
what that did for each of you because it seems like maybe what you were unable to fill with each other you were able to fulfill with say Rita and and Mott I think we each believed and I I think he still believes and I admire this I just I'm not sure that I still believe it Mm -hmm. that if you can make one person's life genuinely better you have somehow made a significant change in the world and I've stopped believing that you can actually, you can, you can help other people do, do what they want to do. And he certainly did that with Rita, and he certainly made Rita's life better. Um, but I don't think I actually made an appreciable difference in Mott's life. And I think that that sort of, I think, we, I think it's often now called the white savior complex. Um, for, for me, the real, what I really got out of the end of my friendship with Mott, because I, I want to be clear that what I got out of the friendship with Mott was, was friendship mm-hmm. and friendship and, and joy and all of that. But what I got out of the way that it ended was sort of an awareness of my own ridiculous and really banal sense that as a white middle class woman, if I really put my mind to something, by gosh, I could fix the social ills of the world, that somehow I was sufficient to fix something as complicated and broken as the social system that was supposed to be there to support Mott and wasn't. And to understand that there's kind of this myth that we, that we put out in the world that the way that we fix societal problems is through individual effort. And in fact, that energy is often better spent working towards policy change. Did you did you get a sense that um, yeah, as you were trying to sort of like coach coach Mott through through your friendship through uh, to try to like sort of bring him bring him down from his his delusions and stuff? Did you feel like that you, in, that it could have been in it, his life got inadvertently sort of complicated and that led to, you know, that, that, that might've led to a, a sense of like more, more tangled thoughts for him as he tried to like come to grips with a, you know, quote unquote, more normal life. I always worried about that. And I always trusted in him because he was very articulate and he, he understood that he was ill. Um, he understood that his thinking was disordered and he was pretty good at reporting to me and, and it, acknowledging in himself when that was better or worse. And so when he would tell me things like, you know, having somebody to talk to helps, uh, humor is good and, and helps him kind of get past fear, I, I trusted him in those things. And I think that's the only way to have a genuine friendship with somebody is to trust them in their self-reporting of their experience. And we talked together about the danger that trying to forge a friendship that went against his, his disordered thinking might be dangerous to him. Um, and he felt that it was worth it to make the effort. So I kind of left whether or not things were okay in his hands. Yeah, and given his, uh, his experience, he seemed, he seemed like pretty, pretty forthcoming, and he, he understood when... To when, like when to when to 
when to shun and when to allow you in. And it's like he was almost like a good a good gauge of when when he could use the help and when he just didn't care for it. And I was that hard for you to be volleyed like a tennis ball back and forth between each of those states and not knowing which you know maybe not not being able to properly foresee which you know which part of your friend you were going to encounter it was and it it taught me a real lesson and i kind of hate phrasing it that way because something i don't want anybody to come away from this book believing is that this was about me going there to learn lessons that was not the point Mm-hmm. But of course, all life experience teaches us something. And I think I am somebody who has always accepted responsibility for things that I actually didn't cause. I'm the kind of person who apologizes incessantly and can feel responsible for things that that I, I didn't make happen, particularly bad things. And I think one of the things that that I had to learn to be better about in order to be a good friend to him was recognizing that I actually couldn't couldn't control the way things were going. And that if there was a day when he said, I can't be around you, it wasn't because I had done something bad. It was because there was a day he couldn't be around me. And that I had to stop looking for explanations or even understanding of exactly why that was. I just had to believe him and trust him. Yeah, because I think uh, a trap might be, and you probably you learn this through experience with him. But it maybe a trap would be to, I don't know, try to persuade him otherwise. Be like, no, I, I'm a good presence for you right now. Like, let's let's hang out and try to work through this. But you came to a point where if he said, no, I can't be around you right now, you, you kind of have to learn to say, uh, just to agree with that and move on because. On Wednesday, it might be a better day to to, pers- to to have a nice day with 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 him. Right, and and that's why when he finally did leave, you know, I felt compelled to go and look for him. But I actually knew I was only looking in places where I wouldn't find him. Um, it was kind of a way to kill a couple of hours after I discovered he had gone and come to terms with it. But I understood by that point that the friendship was going to be impossible for him in any kind of long-term way. That it was something that he had tried, but it it hadn't worked. And I felt as though respecting that Mm -hmm. was key to why we'd ever been able to be friends in the first place. That I, I didn't think of him as separate from his disordered thinking. I had to think of that as just part of who he was. And to respect that that was his experience and not to try to say, oh, but that part's delusional, that part doesn't count, but rather to say, okay, this is your experience and it includes this delusion and we just have to live with that. Yeah, that, uh, you know, early in the book on um, on page five of my galley, there's, um, you know, you, you have this line where you're, you're, you're actually, you, you set out to look for him. Um, and you say, I, I tell myself I'm not going to find them, then I set out anyway. Um, so early on in the book, there there was this part of you that w- would chase him incessantly to, to find him and to, you know, to, and to forge this friendship. Um, and then late in the book, as you just alluded, it was when he, when he left, 
left the apartment or the the house where he was staying like you made the decision where this is the this is where i stop chasing him like what what do you think changed for you where you were able to uh to make that decision and not not pursue as you say like look for him in places that you knew you wouldn't find him one of the things is that the two situations seemed very different to me um, because I knew he had intended it, it, that early part of the book where he doesn't show up where he says he will. Mm-hmm. I actually knew he had intended to do that. And I knew that he was a person with enough fur that he might have, have had a difficult time carrying that through and that he had told me where I could find him by telling me that he was sleeping in the parking lot of the four area Walmart. Mm-hmm. And so it felt less like pursuing him and more like just going to see if, if he was where he's the other place he had said he might be. Um, whereas if the, by the end of the book, it was clear that instead of telling me that he was trying to be, be there and be my friend, he had started telling me that it was time for him to stop trying, that, that now he was done with this. And he said it in very kind ways. There was no meanness. There was no anger. Um, it was very full of, of disordered thinking, but it was also very clear. And again, I feel like this just comes back to to accepting that that disordered thinking was still his experience in the world. So through, but you know, before the book, obviously, you've got a a very very big investment in terms of emotions and time spent with Mott. Then he leaves, and you write the book, and however long it took you, you had the experience again from the construction of the book to kind of fill that uh, sort of void left by him. You're In a, in a lot of ways, the, the book and, and the writing of the book, I imagine, kind of replaced his presence and now that the book is done and you're talking about it there's still kind of a revisitation for it i wonder how um how like how have you dealt with the absence of mott and now now that the book is out like how these there are these chapters of sort of his removal from your life like at what point have you or maybe you already have like come to terms with the the complete disappearance of him from you know from your uh from your life and in a, a physical sense and a more abstract sense. Um, so it's definitely true that he left, a, you know, an absence. Um, the friendship, though, only lasted for a number of months. Mm-hmm. And pretty quickly, my life changed dramatically. He left just as I was starting graduate school. Um, my husband and I uh, divorced a couple of years after he left and my life just dramatically changed shape and so while I will always really be glad that I had the time that I did have with Mott I also recognize that that lives change and move forward and sometimes you can't always carry these friendships through all of those changes and I'm not even sure it would have been possible without the delusion for us to have remained the kind of friends we were for this long Mm-hmm. And I think there's a chapter in the book about the first first man who I took into my home um, when I was in my 20s, uh, a homeless man who was dying of cancer. And there came a point in that friendship, too, where in order to move on with my own life, 
I ended up leaving the house um, that I had shared with him and finding a way for him to be able to stay in it. When I sold the house, I made sure that the people who bought it gave him life estate in a little apartment that he lived in. But I think I think lives continue to move forward, and there's a level of sacrifice that that I feel isn't appropriate in friendship, where you might say, well, I'm not going to let my life move forward in order to accommodate this. Um, and I, I never, these were never friendships that I felt carried greater responsibility than other friendships, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just shaped differently. And so while I miss Scott, it doesn't feel an empty place in my life without him. I just miss his conversation and his wit and humor and his brilliance and his sometimes being able to make me see things in a new way for the better. Yeah. And I guess uh, yeah, shifting gears a little bit, um, what was your routine when writing the book? And like, how did you approach the actual work of getting it done? So I had a copious, copious note, and I started out in the chapters pretty rapidly. Uh, I, I felt like in order to capture memory with any accuracy, the first thing I needed to do was kind of write through the whole thing. Uh, and that was a really ugly draft. <laughs> that was bad. They, they always are. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm happy that the hard drive on the computer those pages were composed on uh, has long since died. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they, they, were, they were a jumble. And then the work was to sit down and, and try to craft just this, this broken narrative um, filled with, with notes and with things from my notebook into some kind of coherent story, and I was very, very lucky. Uh, at the time that I started the book, I was getting my MS. Uh-oh. Looks like we got disconnected there. Let's try again. Sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. Oh, no worries. No worries at all. Um, so, yes, I, yeah, you were talking about... Uh, uh, you had just gotten you had gotten through your your ugly first draft, and you're going through your notebooks and you know just reshaping what you had written. Yes, and I, I started my MFA yeah. as I was writing as I was starting the book, and I was really lucky to study with Kevin Oderman, who just writes the most beautiful prose on the planet. And I had this story, but I had very few skills with getting sentences on the page. Um, and I was, I, I can't, I can't say enough what a, what a great stroke of good luck it was to get to study with somebody who is so good at exactly the things that I was struggling with, mm-hmm. which is how to make language into art. Um, and so I had the best mentors possible. He was certainly not the only one. Um, Sarah Pritchard was invaluable. Cindy Moore has been invaluable. My workshop years were invaluable. And I think there's, I'm not sure that this could have been a book without the structure of graduate school to help get me through the process. Now I'm scared because I'll have to go and do it without that next time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the truth is, as yeah, someone else who went through a, an MFA program, uh, and we share, we share a colleague in Maggie Messett, um, that uh, 
the though you may no longer be enrolled in the program, there's always you always have that community, which is sort of the long tail of having gone through the program. And um, I know I know through Goucher, there's a pretty good uh, Facebook group that uh, everyone you know shares a lot of a lot of work that they find from elsewhere, their own work, and it's just kind of this little hub. So so. Yeah, yeah, like no longer in the workshop setting, but in a lot of ways you still have those those connections where where you can tap into that vein for for some help or maybe some some criticism and and, and pointers. And I imagine if uh, is is this uh, the MFA program you went to at uh, Ohio University? No, I, I got my MFA from West Virginia University okay. and my PhD from Ohio University. Okay. And now, now I'm um, a junior faculty member at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, okay. where I have fabulous colleagues, and where I'm really hoping that that same sort of nurturing that I got through my process is something that I will have an opportunity to give to our undergraduates and MA students. Having come through such an incredibly nurturing program, actually two incredibly nurturing programs, um, I'm really committed to the way in which writing programs and help young writers or new writers, I was certainly not young when I went to my MFA program, learn the discipline of writing as well as the craft. So how do you reconcile teaching with the, the practice of writing? Do you find that it, it, that it takes away or strengthens your writing or, or like how do you, how do you find that, that balance uh, between between coaching and and playing, if that makes any sense. It does. And I, for me, it's completely necessary. It is absolutely necessary both that I teach and that I serve as, as an editor on at least one journal. Um, right now, I'm the prose editor for the journal Stirring, as well as, as teaching four sections of creative writing. And if I don't have that prod of interacting with other people's work, if I don't have the work of writing, which goes beyond doing my own writing to do, I tend to get a little lost in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to me, I have, I have a certain number of hours every day that I spend on the work of writing. And sometimes that work is responding to other people's writing, and sometimes it is doing my own. But having all of those tasks that are associated with the same larger goal allows me to say, nope, these four hours every day are, are hours involved in the work of writing and not to just wander off and do Facebook all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what does the first hour of your day typically look like? So the first hour of my day, uh, right, it depends on whether or not it's an, I have an early class. Often it looks like hopping in the shower and running out the door to sit in, in traffic on my way through Chattanooga. Um, but on days when I am home and writing, I get up, I go in and turn on the computer, check email and, and Facebook, then I open up whatever my latest project is, and I, I tell myself that it can't possibly be as bad as it looks to me at that moment. I make some coffee, I go back and look at whatever the current piece of work is again and hate it some more. <laughs> I probably check Facebook a couple more times, I probably clean something, and then about 40 minutes after I sat down at the computer, I actually started engaging with the writing. And I'm so proud of this because it used to take two hours to get there. Nice. 
<laughs> it kills to me, like, like, being down to less than an hour is a major victory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and do you do any journaling at all, or do you typically just um, don't waste the, that kind of writing energy uh, when you can put it elsewhere? Um, I, I know that this is probably going to gonna sound like a silly answer, but I think of Facebook as a form of journaling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in that way, I think that I do have some journaling practices, but they're small and they're inconsequential, and it's mostly about catching those moments in a day that, that say something to me that are never going to be big enough to go into to a larger work. Mm-hmm. Um, my Facebook posts often feel to me like, like very micro essays. Um, but other than that, I don't really do any journaling. I actually, I tried it for a while, and I found that for me, journaling damaged my, my ability to write creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. That I was, I was trapping memories in amber before they'd really had a chance to settle and turn into something that I could mine, and they were becoming too concretized. Huh. That's interesting that it's yeah some that uh that I guess writing it when it even just jotting down those memories as they as they came up it kind of it didn't allow them to those those memories to like sort of sink into any deeper meaning I guess is kind of what you're yeah they don't they don't have a deeper resonance when you kind of cement them down on the page uh, too soon I guess yes and and for me I think it was particularly sharp. Because even when I would journal, I would sort of write about how I felt about the thing in that moment. And then it always felt false to me if the way that I felt about it two weeks or a month or two years later was different. I felt as though that the, the distance that I had from it, in, although I intellectually I know I probably had a clearer vision, I felt like somehow I was not being honest with the reader if I replace the initial feeling with that. Mm. And I'm one of those people who really believes that nonfiction needs to be nonfictional. Yeah. And so it set up for me a kind of weird echo chamber around that that just went away when I stopped journaling because then what I thought as I was writing wasn't contradicted by what I had thought five, 10, 15 minutes, six hours after an event. And do do you find that okay that maybe the the feeling or the meaning of of the event that happened it get, is is better left to the the Sarah Einstein that comes a few months or weeks later? But did did you ever find that at least through the journaling it, it made sense for you? So things weren't nonfictional that. Uh, X, Y, and Z happen just to know that it happened and it, say it happened on a certain day and you're able to sort of cement the facts and but then to let the meaning resonate later I guess I guess in some sense there might be value in, in the two at least you got I, I guess the 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 time and the place down so that's accurate but then you let that gestate for a long time so you can get the true meaning of what those events happen so I wonder. I wonder if there's um, if there's any sort of validity to that for you. Well, I, well, I think there is. I think for me, I lead such a documented life. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything of note happens, chances are good there's a flurry of emails around it and other things 
that that kind of getting the facts down is something that, that I have access to by going back into my correspondence and into my, my um, calendars and that sort of thing. I'm a big person for calendars. Mm. I have a terrible memory. Yeah. So I have all of these other artifacts, and, and one of the things about those artifacts is I'm not processing the events as a writer. That's where they're just being recorded. And I think that is really important. Uh, and I'm happy that for myself that the way in which that gets captured doesn't engage my writer brain. It just engage, engages my sort of planner brain and, and my reporter brain. Yeah. And what other artistic genres, media, do you draw inspiration from? Um, I am I am absolutely somebody who finds all kinds of art fascinating and inspiring. I feel really lucky now to live in a city with some wonderful art museums and a big art community. My husband does a lot of visual art, and I find, I find a lot of inspiration in just the creativity of other people. I am particularly drawn although I have no talent for it, to photography and the way in which photography is very much like creative nonfiction in that there is, what is there is indeed there, but then there's the act of composition and arrangement and angle that is the thing that the artist brings to, to the photograph. Yeah, it's that, it's that artist's sensibility that it's, it's something filtered through their sensibility and thus it makes it truly theirs so it's uh i think there's um it's like no two people will sort of write the same game story to you know they'll watch the same baseball game or whatever but you'll often get two different stories so it's in a lot of ways that's kind of what you're referring to with the photographs exactly and i feel like the creative nonfiction functions in the same way here are the you know the things that happened in this in this piece are true and really happened, but you're only getting them through the lens of, of how the author sees it and also what the author has decided is important, where the author focuses. And, and so photography for me is a great way to think about, particularly the essay. Also, I love the artistry of cooking, but that's just because cooking is fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And um, what also just moved to the city full of great chefs, and it's, it's actually really, I love I love ephemeral art. I mean, I say that like like I love cooking because it's it's fun to eat, and it is. But I also I think that art has its time and place, and that not all art is forever. And one of the things I like about cooking that also informs my sense of of writing is sometimes things only are are going to be. Sometimes things have a limited shelf life, and that doesn't mean they're not valuable. And and I feel like a lot of my writing is very much of a place and time, um, and that that thinking about other forms of ephemeral art, gardening, where the garden dies back down, um, cooking, things like that, is really useful when thinking about what you want from a particular and what are, if you had to name five of your favorite books, what would they be? Okay. Oh, I love this question. So the first two would be by Abigail Thomas, 
Spacekeeping and Three Dog Night, which just blew the world up in terms of, of what I thought could be done with creative nonfiction for me. Mm-hmm. And I would say have almost everything to do with not just how I write, but, but with why I'm even able to write at all. Um, and the same thing would be true in a different way for Dorothy Allison's two or three things I know for sure, in which the radical level of honesty and disclosure um, changed what I understood I could do on the page and, and how I could create myself in a way that felt honest and ethical to me uh, rather than creating myself as sort of the, as the central heroine in my own life story, which always feels kind of gross and unethical to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those three. And then I've just finished, so, so these are also, of course, all going to be things that are kind of top of mind, but I just finished Maggie Nelson's um, Argonaut, and it has blown me away more than any book in the last five years. I think I think Argonaut is an incredibly seminal work in blending the memoir and the essay and kind of the intellectual work that goes into leading a life. Uh, I just thought that was fabulous. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is going to be just totally out of left field and ridiculous, but it is Jane Eyre. It's just the first book that I fell in love with enough to reread it over and over and over again. Yeah. And Jane Eyre is the book that, in about third grade, turned me into a person who who has to count books as one of her primary relationships. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that, that I found a book that I just fell into and needed to go back and revisit the characters and felt I understood then what it meant to be a participatory reader. Mm-hmm. And, and so that book was really critical in, in starting me as a person who just loves the written word. Isn't that, it, that's just really, it's just really cool how sometimes a, a book or a movie or something can move you to such a place where it actually like, it, it, that totally like rebooted and reconfigured your internal software. Like you got a new software update when you read that book and then it's never been the same ever since. It, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of cool how like one piece of, uh, of something like something like that, be it a you know, people like us, it's more more often than not going to be books, and it's just it's pretty neat to think that 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 one piece of work is kind of set you down. It was like a kind of like a seminal moment for you in a way, and you didn't know it at the time, but it set you down sort of this this path to you know where you are now, where you're actually creating something that might have that kind of impact for somebody else. You just never know. think anybody ever becomes a writer without going through that transition into becoming a reader. Mm-hmm. And I think being a reader is a real thing and a real skill, and it's, it's more than just being someone who sometimes reads books. I think it has to do with our relationship to the world through the written, through the written word and through the page. And I am really grateful to my mother for giving me that book so young, because I think if it hadn't happened at a pretty early age... It might not have happened. So, so put books into the hands of kids, people. Yeah, I might, I might hand that to my. How, how old were you when, uh, when your mother gave you that book? I think I was eight or nine. Yeah. And uh, it, it's not really, a, it's certainly not a children's book, but I think there's a lot of value in giving children books that aren't children's books. 
Um, it starts out when the main character is young enough, but, but that's okay. And, and she has dead parents, which every little girl for some reason needs in a book. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, it, it's a book that part of, part of what is so, to me, so intoxicating about reading is the way in which it challenges and stretches me. And it's certainly a book that, that will challenge and stretch a reader at that age. And I, I think reading a, a timeless book of that of that nature and then getting into it when you're younger is that it, it's almost always, it's always changing as you mature and you just kind of pick out different things that you probably never noticed were there because you were just, you had a blind spot for it when you were nine and then at 12 and then at 15 and then you just, you start seeing things um, and you're, you're like, it almost evolves with you as you, as you mature as even though that thing is a purely static piece of work, it, it still somehow has a life of its own. It's kind of bizarre in a way. Absolutely. I think I can actually sort of trace my own maturation process by which character in the book I identified with because mm. I have reread it so often. Yeah. As a kid, I identified with Jane and thought her story was very romantic. And then sort of in that awful, gothy, adolescent, dark period, um, I identified with Mrs. Rochester as the mad woman in the attic. And, and then finally, I think I sort of settled on being Grace Poole, who is the, the housekeeper who just keeps everything from falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, well, Sarah, I want to be respectful of your time, and um, I really appreciate you carving out a few a few minutes in the in the morning here to get this done. Uh, your, your your book again it's Mott, a memoir by uh, University of Georgia Press. It's a it's a wonderful wonderful memoir, and I hope uh, a lot of people go out there and scarf it up and and buy it and buy it in droves and give it to friends because it's a it's a really great piece of work and how you how you focus the you tell your story but you you really hang the narrative on Mott, which I think was just a brilliant move and and it, it makes the book so it makes it very very powerful and just a compelling read because you're always want to know what's going to happen with uh, with Ma and with in the relationship and the friendship that you guys have. So again, well done and thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I had a great time. Fantastic. All right, we'll be in touch there. Take care. As we close out yet another successful, invigorating, enthralling episode of Hashtag CNF, I just uh, throw out a call to action uh, to give the podcast uh, an old subscribe. And uh, if you, you know, frequent the, the podcast, uh, by all means, uh, go to my website, brendanomera.com, and uh, subscribe to the email newsletter, which only comes out when I post something. Um, that way you get the, uh, the latest sort of updates for uh, the podcast and, uh, and other stuff I may be working on uh, to your email uh, once a week or whenever stuff gets posted. If I don't post anything, then you don't get anything. So it kind of works out and you never feel too flooded or overwhelmed with nonsense. No spam ever. N-S-E. So uh, that's about it. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Take care.